Hi, everybody. This is Jimmy Young Jr. And along with my brother, Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, it's almost Christmas time, a couple weeks away. Are you ready? We are certainly not ready for Christmas here, Jimmy, (laughs) with this family, these three young children who are super excited about Christmas. And we are excited about celebrating the reason for the season, too. But we are not ready yet. Well, uh, we're going to talk about the reason for this season today on the program, and uh, I do hope that you will have the time to get ready along with the rest of us. Well, we've got a great program today, and again, I say that, but we really do. It's an educational program, lots of information today. Ken Timmerman, David Dolan, Paul Scharf talking about Hanukkah, R.C. Merle coming back talking about the digital banking system that is coming into place and it's coming quickly. Well, let's get started with the program with Ken Timmerman. Ken Timmerman joins us. He's our expert on geopolitical affairs. You can find out more about him. He's an analyst and he's an author. You can find out more by going to KenTimmerman.com. Ken, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Rick. It's always a pleasure. Well, Ken, I know last week we spent quite a bit of time talking about Iran, and again, they're in the top of the news stories coming out this week, and there's just so many heartbreaking details about the protests going on in Iran, aren't there? Uh, There are, but uh, there are also quite a number of success stories, Rick. Uh, The Iranians uh, held three days of protests from the 5th to the 7th uh, all across the country, mainly students, but others, workers joined them. Uh, The regime is uh, frustrated that it is incapable of putting down these protests, of stopping them. They tried, for example, over the past week to announce that they would loosen the hijab laws, those laws that require the covering of women in public places. That didn't seem to convince anybody. And now they have uh, actually carried out the first execution, the first public execution, not just the shooting into the crowds, but the criminal procedure execution of a protester for allegedly stabbing a uh, member of the security forces during one of these confrontations. Uh, So I think it's a mixed bag. The regime frustrated the people of Iran. The protesters are frustrated. They have not yet coalesced into any form of leadership organization. So there is there are issues there as to how long this can go on. Just before I finish up on Iran here, it does look like uh, Raisi has vowed to crack down on the protesters, especially, like you said, the women. Well, he has, and and he is emboldened by this lack of response. Look, let me read to you just a couple of statements from the Europeans who have been at least making statements. But listen to this. The German foreign minister put out in a tweet this this recent execution uh, was it shows the Iranian regime's inhumanity knows no bounds. But the threat of execution will not suffocate people's desire for freedom. Gee, that's really strong. Uh, how about the French foreign ministry spokesman, this woman, Anne-Claire Legendre? She said, the, she said the French condemned the execution in the strongest terms and, quote, reiterated strongest commitment to the right to peaceful protest. She said the demands by the protesters are legitimate and must be heard. Well, that's really wonderful. With spaghetti like that, no wonder the Iranian regime is going to execute more prisoners. The EU, which at least, as I say, is stepping up and saying something about the protests and condemning the regime, they're doing nothing. No sanctions, no penalties, no accountability for the murderers in the Tehran regime. No wonder Raisi is claiming to crack down even further, and they will. 
Well, that's why we are glad that our listeners listen to this program and understand what's going on. We are seeking to provide some of the news that, unfortunately, what you call the or what we call the quote unquote mainstream media won't cover. Well, uh, as we continue to look at this Iran situation, there is a story that has come out and it has talked about how Turkey is helping Iran. And uh, this is a very interesting story. I'd like to get you to talk about it a little bit, if you don't mind. Well, fascinating, fascinating story. Uh, it actually was broken by Politico in the EU, not the U.S. Politico, but the Politico in the EU. Uh, it's a story about an arms dealer, a broker for oil and for arms, who is very, very close to uh, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. The man's name is Sitki Ayan. We'll call him Mr. Ayan, just for simplicity here. He was sanctioned just this week by the U.S. Treasury Department, but only, only after this political article named him and described in great detail, based with documents, what he had actually been doing. Uh, so the U.S. has been very slow to sanction this person because he is a, a confidant. He is very close to President Erdogan. He's in his inner circle. They went to school together as kids. And now what is he doing? He is brokering oil for Iran's Quds Force. And remember that the Quds Force and the Revolutionary Guards, they control about 80% of the economy. They make tons of money, tens of billions of dollars a year by the sale of black market oil. And this guy, Mr. Ion, in Turkey, Erdogan's confidant, is the broker. He's the guy, the middleman, arranging the deals. He's working uh, to get tankers uh, reflagged so they won't get caught by the US or other countries selling to China selling to Russia and pocketing, again, a very, very hefty commission. Uh, again, what I find curious here is the U.S. has known about this man for some time. And I say that because they put sanctions on a half dozen of his uh, business partners uh, six months ago. But they did not put Mr. Ayan on the sanctions list. Why? Because the U.S. did not want to offend President Erdogan of Turkey. So interesting. And I think the most interesting thing about this story, to me anyways, is that it looks at this axis, this alliance that has Turkey and China and Russia all working together and Iran, of course, all working together. Is, is that what you see as well? Absolutely. And, you know, we do we talk about that frequently on this program. Uh, people in the think tank community uh, are reluctant to understand the Turkish Iranian common interests, uh, and I have to fight with them often. So those four countries uh, are politically aligned. We will see them squabble from time to time. That's normal. Uh, and it's kind of fun to track that. We do that on this program. But the fundamental interest is a strategic alliance between Turkey, Iran, Russia, and China. Well, very interesting. And like you said, we do track that on this program and, and we do know that there are prophetic implications there. Well, let's move on to the situation in Russia. And it, uh, there are stories coming out this week. Russia is shelling the Eastern Front. And Putin says the West is exploiting this crisis and that this crisis is going to continue for quite some time. Uh, well, I think that's probably true. Uh, but remember, the Putin's uh, blast across all of the Eastern Front on Thursday and Friday uh, really came in response to the astonishing attacks by the Ukrainians deep inside Russia 
using drones. They haven't done this uh, except for one other time, I believe, in this war so far. And uh, this is something that, you know, really hits the Russian hard. All of a sudden, uh, they see that their territory is not a sanctuary, that they also can be attacked. And by the way, I've got to say, as I've been following this war, we've been talking about it on this program, Rick, I have really wondered and I've thought long and hard why the Ukrainians hadn't attacked more into Russia. Was it a lack of capability? Was it that the U.S. was restraining them? Was it that they didn't um, uh, want to expand the war? Were they afraid of retaliation? I think what we found out this week uh, is that it was that they lacked the capability. So now they have longer range drones. They're hitting Russia. The Russians are striking back. That has not deterred Ukraine. In fact, it's gotten and it's gotten Putin to say there could be a, a possible negotiated end to the war. At the same time, he says it could last. He's saying there could be some ways of talking through the end of the war. One other thing to add here, the State Department is very nervous about this. They have said publicly, we are not encouraging Ukraine to attack into Russia. And we've learned also this week from the Wall Street Journal that the Defense Department has limited the capability of the HIMARS uh, long-range rocket system so they cannot launch rockets into Russia. Uh, I have seen reports that Ukrainian software engineers who are among the best in the world uh, have been working to alter that software to restore the capabilities of the HIMARS. So I would say watch this space. I think you will see more Ukrainian attacks into Russia, and we shall see if those attacks emboldened Putin or anger Putin to uh, increase his military offensive into eastern Ukraine, or whether they actually bring him to the negotiating table. So many competing uh, narratives in this space right here. We will definitely watch that. We appreciate your efforts to keep us informed there. Well, another story that I'd like to get your take on is this prisoner exchange for the celebrity athlete, Brittany Griner. Something about this rubs me the wrong way. I just wanted to get your take on this, Ken. Well, Rick, this, this is really, it's an incredible story and it's something that never should have happened. It's a horrible swap. And basically what it tells countries like Iran, but places like the Republic of Georgia, where I've been recently trying to help an Iranian refugee who has been falsely accused by the Iranian regime in the courts of the Republic of Georgia, it encourages foreign countries to take hostages because then they can trade them with the United States. Brittany Griner, she was a hostage. She was taken by the Russians as a hostage. The same, uh, exactly the same as, their, their, as, as Paul Whelan a uh, retired U.S. Marine officer who went to Moscow for a wedding. And Biden trades a, a man, Victor Boot, who has been selling arms on the black market for 15 years. He's a Putin crony. He was engaged in Africa, uh, fueling uh, all kinds of civil wars. <laughs> he, he supplied arms to both sides in Angola, the UNITA rebels and, and, the, and the communist government. Uh, this is a man with no morality whatsoever. But again, close to Putin, which is why Putin was very eager to get him out. Uh, we should have made a deal. If we were going to do a hostage swap, a prisoner swap, we should have gotten all the U.S. prisoners out. We should have gotten them all out. I think this was a disgrace, and especially for Biden to go first seek to liberate a woman who said the national anthem should not be uh, uh, sung at, uh, uh, at basketball games, at national basketball games, for him to get a woman like that out before Paul Whelan, a man who has served his country, I think is completely disgraceful. 
I do think it highlights the identity politics that are taking place in America right now, which is some somewhat unfortunate. Well, Ken, as always, you do an excellent job, and there's quite a few interesting stories right now, and you do a good job of keeping us informed on them. We thank you so much, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks so much, Rick. God bless. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, our Middle East news update right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. In Afghanistan, the Taliban has carried out its first public execution since taking power in August of 2021. The father of a murder victim shot and killed the murderer. Fourteen people also suffered floggings in front of a filled soccer stadium. Christians in Afghanistan face persecution every week. World Mission is focusing on training leaders for the Afghan church. So ask God to give these leaders wisdom and boldness as they proclaim Jesus in a dangerous area. And the Syrian refugee crisis has been on the metaphorical back burner for several years, but it hasn't gone away. Last year, Jordan gave the highest amount of work permits to Syrian refugees since 2016. Opportunities may exist, but it's not always easy for refugees to find them. That's where MENA Leadership Center comes in. The MLC helps local churches connect with refugees and support them in their journey. Believers introduce the hope of Christ along the way. Mission Network News is a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His Scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy D. Young's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of Bible prophecy. Well, this is the portion of our program that we dedicate to our Middle East news update. And to do that, we have our good friend, journalist, Dave Dolan. Dave, thank you for joining us today. It's good to be with you, Rick. Well, Dave, we're going to start off in Israel. Last week, we talked about the terror attacks that were taking place in Israel, and now, and then the retaliation by the IDF, and that retaliation continues as they continue to crack down in the areas of Judea and Samaria, the West Bank areas that some may call them. They continue to crack down on these terrorists, don't they? They definitely do, Rick. Uh, There was a number of incidents during the week. Another um, Islamic Jihad leader was killed in Jenin in a firefight with Israeli troops. Several other Palestinians were killed in clashes after uh, stone-throwing attacks and other things. Another Palestinian man tried to grab the rifle of an IDF soldier after stabbing him in the face. So there was a lot of things. And this came as the outgoing defense minister, Benny Gantz, warned that an explosion was possibly imminent in uh, Judea and Samaria. It came as a former U.S. ambassador to Israel said he was told that officials are expecting a full new uprising to begin pretty much at any time. 
Well, and it does seem, and many diplomats are saying, and many news pundits are saying that it may get worse right now in the area, like, again, we call it Judea and Samaria, but the West Bank or the occupied territories is what the national media calls it. It looks like it may get worse before it gets better. Well, it's becoming, again, an armed conflict. Basically, that's what the first and the second uprisings were. I covered both of them for CBS radio network and was in the middle of many clashes. And I will never forget how Palestinian young people would be chanting and suddenly two or three armed gunmen would pop up from the ground, hiding in between them with rifles and start shooting at Israeli soldiers. So we're seeing much more use of uh, those sorts of weapons. Of course, we've had an upsurge of terror attacks this year uh, with over 40 Israelis killed. It's getting very, very serious. And of course, Islamic Jihad, an arm of Iran, Iran continuing to fight against uh, revolts within its own country, against authoritarian Islamic uh, clerical rule. And the expectation is still that they may want to divert attention from that situation by stirring up trouble with Israel. And by the way, Rick, in the meantime, at the World Cup, anti-Israel statements and demonstrations have been daily a feature. Uh, A huge Palestinian flag was brought to the World Cup. Of course, it's in Doha, the capital of Qatar. And uh, it's been passed from group to group and unfurled three or four times. Moroccan players all raised small Palestinian flags after they won a game. And we've had a lot of incidents where Israeli media there tried to interview people from some of the Arab countries, from Iran, et cetera, and even from Europe. Uh, One British uh, group turned away and said, free Palestine, that's become the chance. So the conflict is not just taking place on the ground, but apparently the rest of the Arab world in particular and Islamic world sees the situation heating up as well, and they're apparently egging it along. Well, that's uh, one of the incidents I wanted to talk to you about. We have talked about the Abraham Accords, one of those peace treaties that is on the table with the different Arab countries. I don't believe Qatar was one of those countries, but it looks like those accords are starting to wane a little bit, especially as this Palestinian situation heats up, like you say. Yeah, Rick, it's uh, the Palestinian situation heating up. It's also, of course, the new incoming government. Uh, which is going to have uh, these very nationalistic religious parties in it that are very strong in uh, amongst Jewish voters in Judea and Samaria. And we've had criticism again this week from Benny Gantz, actually, the outgoing defense minister, and others. Um, Eisenkopf, a former a chief of staff, joined in saying these demands that the parties are making to have sort of a ministry within the defense ministry that they would control that would deal directly with the settlements. These are problematic and should be resisted and this sort of thing. So the Arabs are hearing all of that as well, picking up on that. But President Herzog did uh, early this week visit two of the Gulf countries that Israel made peace with, Bahrain and the UAE, and uh, had good meetings. But the people are not always where the governments are. The governments are looking for more regional stability, more economic assistance. In the case of Bahrain, they have a huge Shiite uh, population, and they're very much afraid of Iran. So Iran remains the cement that made the Abraham Accords go forward, but it doesn't look like there's any more pieces 
in that peace process that Donald Trump essentially started uh, about to fall into place. Well, of course, David, as you know, we look at scripture and we see that there is going to be a peace treaty on the table and there's going to be peace, but it's not going to be normalized until that tribulation period. And it certainly looks like that's the case right now. Well, if we continue on, uh, one of the entities that is very involved in the Middle East uh, is the United Nations. And there's a couple stories that I would really like your opinion or commentary on. One of them was one of the U.N. Mideast envoys expressed over a tweet sympathy for a Palestinian attacker. Now, this Palestinian attacker was young and he was shot, but he was done so in the process of committing a crime. Can you tell us a little bit about that story and maybe what it reveals about the U.N.'s attitude towards this situation in Israel? Yes, Rick, it was actually the U.N. Mideast peace envoy, Tor Wenesland, who made that tweet. Uh, coming after the Israeli foreign ministry uh, called him in to talk to him about the incident. And as you say, he strongly condemned Israeli actions and, you know, you shouldn't be firing at people and killing people and whatever. But the young man that was killed uh, started the whole situation by approaching an Israeli car. A couple was inside and they were at a stoplight up in, in northern Samaria. He tried to get their car door open. They locked it. He continued to ram at it. And the driver, uh, as a former army guy, he pulled out a pistol and fired at him. The guy ran. He ran to a nearby Israeli army base and he stabbed uh, one of the guards there, the Israeli guards there in the face. And then, of course, he fought back and his rifle fell to the ground. The young man, this is all caught on video, by the way. The young man tried to grabbed the rifle. And at that point, another nearby Israeli guard shot the Palestinian man dead. So um, a sad incident, but certainly Israel didn't initiate anything there. It was an attempt to probably kidnap these, uh, this Israeli couple, uh, started the whole thing. An Israeli soldier was, uh, you know, stabbed in the face. And yet the UN peace envoy focuses entirely on sympathy for the family and how, you know, this shouldn't be happening and whatever. Well, you know, it shouldn't be happening, but again, it wasn't an Israeli-initiated action. Now, they did go into the Janine camp, as I said, where we had four Palestinians killed this week. But again, they're going after particular men that are armed, heavily armed, that are members of the Islamic Jihad Palestinian group and are openly declaring, as the group is, Jihad, holy war against Israel, and are the main forces in this potential new uprising. So, you know, Israel is not initiating any of this. They're fighting back. Uh, and again, after an earlier spate of terror attacks, leaving over 40 Israelis dead, and of course, these two bombings a couple of weeks ago in Jerusalem itself. Well, in my opinion, it looks like that kind of shows the way the United Nations is looking, and maybe sometimes the rest of the world is looking at Israel. In fact, that I saw uh, an opinion piece in the Jerusalem Post recently, and they were talking about the fact that the UN General Assembly in 2022 alone has passed 15 resolutions targeting the Jewish state compared to 13 for the rest of the world combined. And this is a world where we have China, where we have Iran and what's going on there with the protests. We've got Russia. We've got all these things going on in the world. But apparently Israel, for some reason, and I think you and I know what the reason is, but apparently Israel is what they focus on. 
It's their overwhelming focus. Uh, they pass this package of anti-Israel resolutions every year in November. And they did so, as you said, this year, 15 resolutions. And amongst them, Rick, is one that had been proposed earlier, but it, they reaffirmed it to hold a Mideast peace conference in Moscow, in Russia. Well, hmm. the UN, <laughs> the Israeli UN ambassador pointed out that uh, seven and a half million Ukrainians are now refugees from their land because Russia is invading their country, is destroying their power grids, is slaughtering their people, uh, deliberately attacking civilian centers all over the place. So he said, if you're going to hold a conference in Moscow and it's going to talk about refugees, shouldn't that be the number one topic? <laughs> so, you know, this is the, the point that the uh, article you mentioned in the post was making was that it's just ridiculous or such an overwhelming focus on Israel, um, just an obsession with it. And there are a lot of other problems in the world. Uh, certainly the Ukrainians would say right now, our problem is probably number one. Well, David, so much going on in the world and much of it centered around that little nation of Israel that we know has such a big role to play in God's plan overall and in God's prophetic plan as well. Thank you for the job that you do, educating our listeners about these subjects. And we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you, Rick. God bless. We're going to take a break right now, but stay tuned for more of Prophecy Today Radio. Just how close are we to the rapture of the church? Do events taking place in the Middle East and around the world have prophetic significance? In his latest book, Sound the Trumpets, Jimmy DeYoung examines these questions and explains just how near the rapture of the church could possibly be. By comparing four trends from prophetic scripture to current events taking place in the world today, Jimmy shows that the stage is set, every actor is in place, and the curtain is about to go up on the end-time scenario set forth in the scriptures. Sound the Trumpets is a must-read for every serious student of Bible prophecy. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's new book, Sound the Trumpets, for only $15, call us today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us on the World Wide Web at prophecytoday.com. Call today and make sure to get your copy of Sound the Trumpets. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. This is the month of December. We've established that. We established it last week, and I'm sure everybody knows if you're like me. Uh, Rick, we're, we are still kind of trying to get everything together in order to enjoy the season. And sometimes the busyness of the holidays gets the best of us, and we really forget about the birth of Jesus Christ, and we forget about the reason for the season and understanding that. Well, it is the season of Christmas, and last week we also started a series with my good friend Paul Scharf. Paul Scharf is a church ministries missionary with Friends of Israel, and he works in the Midwest. And uh, we started a series on Hanukkah. Paul, welcome back to the program this week. Thank you, Jimmy. It's great to be back with you. Yes, sir. And we got a lot of great response uh, from people that appreciate uh, always when we look at the Jewish holy days, holidays, the Jewish feast uh, with either you or Steve Herzig, with Friends of Israel, you guys, uh, you enlighten us as to why the feasts are so important 
for us to understand as Christians, not necessarily to take part in them as bringing them back in, but really to understand them, correct? Right. It's so important for us to understand this background to our biblical faith, which Mm. comes, of course, to us really from the Jewish people. And it's also so important that we can understand and relate to our Jewish friends, especially at this uh, most festive season of the year for them as it is for us as Christians. So last week we talked about those uh, the black hole of the Bible, and really, I mean, it's just the pages right. from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from the end of Malachi to the beginning of Matthew. Let's go back, just rehearse that just a little bit so somebody that's just coming in new this week will understand what we're talking about and why, as we start to talk about Hanukkah, why it's important. Right. Well, Jimmy, it's so important because during those 400 silent years, as we often refer to them, we know that God was working all things after the counsel of his will as he works throughout history to bring all things to fulfillment for of his glory, Uh, but he was working specifically during that time, we might say setting the stage for the coming of Christ, his first coming. Mm -hmm. I think that's why Hanukkah is also so vitally important for us today as we live at the time we believe we're seeing the stage being set for Christ's second coming and for the fulfillment of those prophetic events. But uh, back in this time, God was directing all things to bring the world to that precise moment when in the fullness of the time he would send forth his son at the exact precise time that he had determined and when the world conditions were in the place that god wanted them for that marvelous event to uh to occur and for the life of christ and his ministry to take place on the earth yes you know what i love about it it was exactly right on time when you look at the years uh, you know, mentioned in the book of Daniel, we know when right. Christ would appear in the city of Jerusalem. And really, you know, the Jewish people should have, and that's what Christ said, if you'd only read the prophets, you would know that I was supposed to be here at this very moment. So, you know, that's a, I love the the fact that he's always on time, never early, never late. And so that's a, I think that is so very important. Well, we are talking about uh, Hanukkah, It's the Jewish festival, the Feast of Dedication, also known as the Festival of Lights. It is an eight-day festival beginning on the 25th day of the Jewish month of Kislev. And I think that's important. So let's let's talk about Hanukkah again and just bring us up to speed. And then I have a few other questions I'd like to ask you as pertaining to Hanukkah. Well, Jimmy, Hanukkah, of course, uh, celebrates these events that happened in the 160s B.C. in between uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and thus it cannot be a biblically mandated festival. It's not in the Mm. uh, Mosaic Law. It's not in Leviticus 23. Uh, But it, it commemorates what happened when the Jewish people rose up in the most astounding way and overcame Uh, the tyranny of a man named Antiochus IV or Antiochus Epiphanes, who came out of the Greek Empire, one of the four offshoots of Alexander the Great, and he took over the kingship of the Seleucid Empire, the Syrians. Mm -hmm. He's the king of the north, biblically, as opposed to the king of the south in Egypt, 
who he had tried to attack three times, and he had really set his sights on world domination, being the next Alexander, and the key, he believed, to implementing that kind of reign was to subjugate everyone in the empire, including the Jewish people whom he had overtaken, and he wanted to remove all of their culture, uh, all of their religion, everything, all of their traditions, everything that they knew and loved, and make them fully Greek. The The technical term is Hellenistic. Mm. And by the way, Jimmy, we see traces of uh, the results of this all through the Gospels, all the way into the book of Acts in the early church. Remember in Acts chapter 6, you had a group of widows that were concerned of the treatment they were receiving because they were Hellenistic uh, Jews and not uh, the traditional uh, Jewish people that uh, like the rest. And so we have this this uh, remnant of this time all the way down there into the New Testament church. Sure do. And really that uh, Hellenistic be- really begins with the Greek time period. And when you think about it, and I, I hope I'm not stealing your thunder a little bit, Paul, but when you think about it, the times of the Gentiles, this is that dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in Daniel chapter 2. Daniel had a dream pertaining to the times of the Gentiles, beginning with the Babylonian Empire over being overtaken by the Medes and the Persians. And then the Greeks, Alexander the Great, and that's who you're referring to when you say Alexander. Alexander right. the Great, with the speed that he came from Greece across the European continent, all the way to um, ended up dying in Babylon at the age of 32. But really, then his Greek empire, his Grecian empire, was split into uh, fours uh, in order for the four generals, Alexander the Great's four generals, to kind of take and have that area, which, I mean, it's laid out in Bible prophecy. So, uh, I mean, and here we're talking about this is the time period that the Seleucids were in control and, uh, you know, uh, they uh, overtook the Holy Land, um, really going into the temple. Well, we could talk about that. How do we see this in the Old Testament, Paul? Well, it, Jimmy, you've hit the nail on the head. It's all f- based in the book of Daniel. We have Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the four kingdoms that mm-hmm. will rule the world from the time that Nebuchadnezzar began to overtake Jerusalem. Uh, And his rule, uh, followed by uh, his successors through the end of the Babylonian kingdom, would be followed by Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, Mm. and then finally a revived Roman Empire at the end of time, in the future time of fulfillment of prophecy, we believe before the second coming of Christ. This is described in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2. It's in the form of this magnificent rule of man that glimmers in the sun, this amazing statue, gold, silver, Mm. bronze, and iron. Uh, But then when Daniel receives another vision about this in chapter 7, he sees the four kingdoms, like uh, Peter calls uh, some people, natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed. He sees them as these horrendous, just uh, strange creatures lion, a bear, a leopard, and finally an indescribably horrible beast. And then Daniel sees them again in chapter 8 as a ram and a he-goat, this time only though Medo-Persia and Greece. And that's where we zero in on Greece 
and the Greek Empire that you've mentioned under Alexander the Great and then his successors as they're broken up and over many decades we get down to this time around 175 when Antiochus comes to power as the king of the north, the king of the Seleucids, the king of Syria, and uh, he's the man we were talking about who uh, had this vision of ruling the world like Alexander, and in the process of uh, ruling over the Jewish people, he desecrates the temple Mm. and does just unimaginably horrendous things to the people and to show his power over them and just to demoralize them within the temple in Jerusalem. And he brings an end to temple sacrifice. And in fact, he sacrifices a pig on the altar in honor of the uh, Greek god Zeus, and he's actually insane enough to believe that perhaps he's the manifestation, the uh, 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 Antiochus and uh, uh, Epiphanes uh, is his name. He's the manifestation, he believes, Theos Epiphanes of God and mm-hmm. the god Zeus. Hmm. And so uh, he he carries out all these abominable works in Jerusalem and on the Jewish people, uh, and it's all laid out, Jimmy, in biblical prophecy. That's where we go back again to the book of Daniel. This story is told in Daniel chapter 8 initially, uh, as Daniel is describing this he-goat, which is Alexander, who's going to come across the world so quickly, not even touching the ground. Um, he's described in uh, Daniel Uh, chapter 8, verse 5, and his successors, after that great horn is broken, the horn of Alexander, uh, there come up these four uh, little horns, and they are including the king of the north that we're talking about, Antiochus Epiphanes. Mm. Wow. That's how Hanukkah relates to Bible prophecy. How do you see it relating in the future to Bible prophecy? Well, yes, Jimmy, because we're talking here about the book of Daniel chapter 8, verses 9 through 14. Daniel receives this vision, and then Gabriel, interestingly, the first time in all of Scripture that an angel is named, Gabriel describes the, the vision that Daniel has received. He gives him an inspired interpretation, if you will, in verses 23 through 26, as Daniel records this. And it's interesting, and then we go. We would have to go further, Jimmy, in Daniel chapter 11, verses 21 through 35. They lay out this whole scenario, and a couple of things about that. You ask if, if it relates to Bible prophecy. It's actually, we believe Antiochus is a type of the future Antichrist, they're both, mm. they both have this unique, uh, they share this unique connection in that they're both going to commit an abomination of desolation in the temple in Jerusalem uh, and proclaim themselves to be God in the temple in Jerusalem. And sometimes the descriptions about them are so intertwined and match so closely that even uh, Bible students in our pre-trib uh movement will interpret mm-hmm. a, 
a particular passage. Some will interpret it as being talking about Antiochus, and others will interpret it as talking about the future Antichrist. Mm. Uh, that's how closely these two men are interconnected on the pages of biblical prophecy. Well, Paul, thank you so much for joining with us today and giving us a better understanding of Hanukkah. We look forward to having you back uh, in the future during a holiday or a holy day, one of the feasts of the Bible. And uh, and uh, give us again your website, Paul. Well, thank you, Jimmy. Uh, people can find all my resources for our ministry within the Friends of Israel on sermonaudio.com at sermonaudio.com slash p Sharf. That's P-S-C-H-A-R-F. Excellent. Thank you, Paul, for joining with us this week. We look forward to joining with you again. God bless you. Thank you so much, Jimmy. Well, each week on the program, we get uh, lots of letters, lots of people communicating with us. And uh, Rick, each week, as we receive this information, you wouldn't believe how many people send us information pertaining to the new digital banking concept that's coming around. And so I knew that I needed to get back to my good friend, R.C. Merle. R.C., welcome back to the program today. Hey, thanks, Jimmy. Good to be with you. You know, one thing I'm encouraged about, back in the old days, there were a handful of prophecy uh, ministries that were talking about prophecy and what's taking place in the end times, how they understood scriptures, uh, looking at examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Now, today, there are a lot of prophecy ministries that are focusing on this. I think everybody's kind of understanding how prophecy does fit into our lives as Christians, and we are seeing many more prophecy ministries focusing on this digital concept correct oh yeah we really are jimmy and i'm gonna i'm gonna address that a little bit later on because there's some of them that are you know using it in a very sensational manner that that can be uh that can be dangerous and troubling okay well I, i'm looking forward to that but you sent me an article this last week that shows that the nations are advancing and rolling out a central bank digital currency According to the article, Nigeria has launched their program by reducing cash withdrawals from banks. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, yeah, Jimmy, uh, I was actually sent this article on Wednesday from our associate editor who sent me this uh, Cointelegraph article. It really got my attention because Nigeria is the most populous country in Africa with 211 million residents, nearly twice the population of Egypt and a higher GDP per capita than the United Kingdom, which really surprised me. Mm. The, uh, the Central Bank of Nigeria issued a directive for banking in a December 6th circular saying that individuals and businesses could now be limited to withdrawing an equivalent of U.S. dollars, $45 or 20,000 nairas mm. per day and $225 or 100,000 nairas per week from ATMs. Now, to show that the government means business, Individuals that go over their cash limit will be hit with a 5% fee and businesses with a 10% fee as a penalty for exceeding the directive. You know, Jimmy, I have a feeling that what's happening in Nigerian cash withdrawals could be the template for the rest of the emerging market economies as they begin to wean their citizens off paper money. Well, so, I mean, they're limiting how much you can take out of, uh, out of an ATM machine, correct? That's correct. So, I, I mean, have we... I mean, I know ATMs are uh, relatively, you know, new, but have we seen this type of thing before? 
No, I, I don't think we have. Well, certainly we haven't here. We haven't seen it in the U.S. I don't yeah. know about other countries. But, but you know, it, it would make an awful lot of sense. The logistics of going cashless are, are just enormous when you really try to work it out. If you try to work with it, you just try to work backwards from the idea of no more paper money. And how do we get there? How is it turned in? But, you know, it seems actually brilliant to start limiting the amount mm -hmm. of money or cash that people can get out of their bank. You're conditioning people. To, you're conditioning people. Exactly right. Yeah, that's uh, that's unbelievable. And uh, that they're starting in Africa. I just uh, saw an article that uh, President Biden next week will welcome the African Union into a permanent member status of the G20, which is really that's the the, the G20 is the highest uh, the, the world's largest economies. And so we're talking about a nation that's a part of the African Union that is now uh, that will become a, a permanent member that is limiting the money that you could take out your money that you could take out of the bank which is setting up, uh, I believe, a digital system as you do. So before we go on, just explain to us briefly again what the, uh, the central bank digital currency is. Okay, what it, what it really is is, is, is just a token. It, it, it's, a, it's a digital entry on a ledger. Now, what we're hearing about the central bank digital currency is that, is that the, the currency itself will just be an entry that will be guaranteed by the central bank of the country instead of by the full faith and credit of the of the government. So there'll be a shift there in who guarantees this money. And there are approximately 110 central banks that are all looking into this digital currency, which will which will really start to spread around the world. And that's that's part of my report today, because right now we're seeing over 110 nations that have some level of involvement in central bank digital currencies. And and actually on our website, uh, we had uh, we found a, a a tracker where you could just click on any particular nation and see where they are in the process. And there's actually only two nations that are canceled. Each nation will be classified on this tracker uh, by whether it's launched their currency, whether they're in pilot programs, whether they're in development, research, or inactive, or whether they canceled. And, I, and only two of these of these uh, countries have canceled. Now, Nigeria, who has the largest GDP on the continent of Africa, has launched. Surprisingly, the report says the report that on the tracker says that the U.S. and the U.K. are lagging behind the rest of the world. Uh -huh. However, the recent FTX Bitcoin scandal that is engulfing cryptocurrencies mm -hmm. with over 50 billion in losses has motivated the Federal Reserve on November 15th to leapfrog from a research stage to a 12-week pilot program, which has not been updated on the tracker yet. I know you're not a prophet, RC, but what is your best guess for a timeline for a global buy-in for CBDCs? Yeah, I, I've been checking on some of my the financial experts that I've been following on this thing. and uh, People like Jim Rickards, who, who really started off uh, an awful lot of the warnings on this. Charles Nenner, another big analyst, uh, they all point to a mid late 2023, mid to late 2023 timeline. Uh, but one thing that they all say that will be very much bigger, that this will be very much bigger than uh, any money event in history, including the establishment of the Federal Reserve in 1913, the U.S. government confiscation of private gold in 1934, or the 1971 order that took the U.S. dollar off the gold standard, or even the emergence of Bitcoin in 2009. In fact, Jimmy, I'm thinking 
that the global use of digital money will be the biggest economic event since the king of Lydia authorized gold and silver coins in 650 BC. Wow. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> historic. I mean, when you think about this is, it, this is really really big and it's going to take a lot of logistics and a lot of there's going to be a lot of pushback from the nations because there's still an awful lot of nations that do a lot of business with paper paper dollars, paper currency from whatever nation they're in. RC, not long ago, we talked on our program about a date that you gave that President Biden, uh, almost in a, uh, you know, just kind of as quiet as possible, implemented, uh, signed into process of uh, devaluing or doing away with paper money. What date was that? And and how how far are we on that? Well, it was March 9th. Um, the, the directive was Executive Order 14067. And what it, it did was, was it gave the Federal Reserve six months to get back to the Biden administration with the feasibility of taking our dollar and making it digital. That period of time was up in September. And since then, there has been a lot of ramping up of the uh, of the uh, central bank in in, in, impl- in in figuring out how they're going to implement this thing. But again, what really made it turn around was this FTX uh, blow up in the cryptocurrencies with all the all the losses around the world in cryptocurrencies. So the so the Federal Reserve now has launched this program and and they're moving quickly now uh, into a 12 week program. I think we're about two or three weeks into the program. At the end of this period of time, we'll see uh, just how far away we are from uh, from implementing this. Wow. You know, um, not everybody. Uh, <laughs> I certainly don't have time to watch Money Watch or any of these uh, programs uh, that focus on our money. I probably should spend more time on it. But uh, my priority is teaching the word of God and, and getting that message out. But, um, you know, as we look at this as Christians, I always have to ask you how this all fits into Bible prophecy. Yeah, Jimmy, what concerns me, is, as we talked about earlier, is that there are writers out there who deal in sensationalism, implying that the CBDCs are a form of the mark of the beast. You know, if we work backwards chronologically from Revelation 13, 16 through 18, the mark of the beast cannot happen until three and a half years after the tribulation begins. Let me clarify that. The, the, the Apostle John tells us that everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, will receive a mark on their right hand or forehead in order to buy and sell. So while we know that the mark of the beast prophecy must have its roots in a cashless society, we also know from 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18 and in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52, that none of this would happen until after Jesus Christ returns mm. for his church. So in actuality, Jimmy, Christians will not be here to see this prophecy <laughs> fulfilled. In our post on Nigeria today, I listed a possible order of the prophetic events that needed that are needed to be fulfilled for the prophecy to be finished. Wow, wow. And that is, again, there are no prophecies to be fulfilled before the rapture of the church. What we're looking at are events that will be fulfilled after the church is gone, after the rapture has taken place, after a world leader, charismatic world leader, will come on the scene, take control uh, of a world probably out of control after the rapture of the church. He then implements, he's a, a, as they're one of the 27 names of the Antichrist. He's a man of war, he's a man of perdition, man of sin. There are many names, 27 of them. But one of those has to do with the financial aspect. And here we're seeing a world system coming into play that is setting up. Now, RC, you don't think that the Antichrist is behind this right now, correct? No, I really don't. Um, I, 
you know, I, th- I think what we have here is, is all these nations are moving in tandem all at the same time. And you're wondering, well, who's pulling the strings here? And the only thing that could come to my mind is something that an old friend of mine, Jack Kinsella, once said, that they're all operating under the grand conspirator that's moving all this along. Mm. So I, I believe there's a satanic influence yes. here as governments crack down on people taking and people's money. When you take over people's money, Jimmy, when that starts to happen, it affects every human being on Earth. You sure know, does. we have controversies over so many things going on, and the country seems to be split the 50-50 on so many Many events, so many things that are happening in the news. But when this happens, when money is affected, it affects everybody on the planet. Sure does. Well, RC, thank you so much for uh, keeping us aware of this, uh, keeping our listeners aware, probably other prophecy websites that uh, take your information. Uh, how can we find uh, the story? It will be linked on our our, our website. But uh, if, pe- if people want to find more information pertaining to other stories that you have posted, where can we go? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. My Our associate editor brought that up with me yesterday. We, we have a lot of stories on this. And what we're going to try to do in the next week or so is create a link on the homepage of our website, prophecytracker.org that will have all the articles going back to the beginning of CBDCs. Mm. Uh, it's going to take us a little while to put it together, but we want to try to, you know, we just want to get them all in one spot on the website. As it is now on my website, you can go to our little um, uh, microscope thing and, and the search uh, engine and just type in CBDCs and a lot of things are going to come up. Oh, yes. Well, thank you so much for for keeping us aware. You're our financial um person that we go to and we trust we know that uh, you had a great relationship with my father dr jimmy DeYoung, over the years and uh, i trust you uh, with your understanding of bible prophecy and how how all of this fits into place thank you rc Merle. thank you for joining with us today again that website is prophecytracker.org go there to find out other information and uh, we look forward to talking to you again in the future Thanks, Jimmy. Good to be with you. God bless. Well, we got to take a break. And when we come back, the Legacy Series with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, he's talking about the date for Christmas. And should we be celebrating it on December 25th? Right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we've been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. We've started this series on Christmas, Rick. And if someone were interested in getting something in a uh, video form, where would they go? Well, Jimmy, you could certainly go to our website. And we have a video entitled Bethlehem Beyond the Christmas Story, which basically is a video teaching what you're going to be hearing coming up soon on the radio. But also, if you call our office at 423-825-6247, for a donation of any amount around this Christmas time. We'd love to give you that video, get it in your hands, so you can see this teaching that you're going to hear from Dad in just a second. On the Legacy Series today, we're going to continue with interesting details and facts as they relate to the Christmas story. And today we're going to be looking at what about the day that we celebrate his birthday, December 25th. Is that truly the day that Christ was born on? We'll look first at Luke chapter 1. So take your Bible, go to Luke chapter 1. We'll begin to study some of those interesting details and facts related to the Christmas story. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. Today we're going to continue our study of interesting facts 
and details related to the Christmas story, the first coming of Jesus Christ, which took place almost 2,000 years ago. I'm going to answer the question that many, many people ask all the time. Was it really December the 25th that Jesus Christ was born on? You know, I've heard sermon after sermon, and you probably have as well, heard sermons and preachers telling us that no way was Jesus Christ born on December the 25th. That would be in the middle of the winter. And in those fields in Bethlehem, uh, it would be a terrible time out there in the cold winter night with rain and sleet and snow. Listen, I lived in Jerusalem for the last 20 years, and I know exactly how it is in December there in those shepherd's fields. And I've seen six inches of snow on those shepherd's fields. It was a beautiful Christmas scene because so often we relate Christmas to snow. Those same sermons have talked about the shepherds not being able to be in the shepherd's fields at that point in time. I want to tell you, they had to be in those fields. But again, we have to go back to the question, how can we know if it was December the 25th, the true day of the birth of Jesus Christ? We're going to look today at the text, what God's Word has to say about it, the tyrant connected with this event of Christmas, and the theologians, and how did they come to the conclusion of accepting the 25th of December as the birth date for Jesus Christ. Let's go first to the text, and we'll go to the book of Luke chapter 1, where we have one of the chapters that's dealing with the first coming of Jesus Christ, his birth. Let's go to verse 5, because in this verse, we're going to find out actually information helping us to determine the actual month that Jesus Christ would have been born. Remember, we're talking about Zacharias, who is a priest. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias, and he was of the course of Abia. Now, let me stop right there. The course of Abia, what's that talking about? Well, remember King David was not allowed to build the temple because of sin in his life. His son Solomon would actually build the temple. In First Chronicles chapter 24, King David sets in place 24 courses for the 28,000 priests to work at the temple during the year. They would only work about a two-week period of time. Zacharias was of the course of Abia. According to additional Jewish literature, the Talmud, we know the time of the course of Abia. That would be the last week of July and the first week of August. He was serving in that period of time, and after his two weeks of responsibility as a priest at the temple, verse 23 tells us that when it came to pass, as soon as the days of his ministration were accomplished. What's that talking about? Well, Zacharias, like every priest, had responsibilities after their two weeks of service in the temple as a priest, and they had to go through the ritual baths, they had to go through many activities that would keep them from returning home until all of these activities were finished. Well, it says in verse 23, when they were accomplished, he departed to his own house, which was located in Encarim, about seven miles from the temple mount. Notice verse 24, and after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. As the angel Gabriel had told Zacharias the priest, his wife Elizabeth, who had had a barren womb until this time and up in age, was going to give birth to a child. He returns to his home after his ministration, which follows his two weeks of service. We're talking about the first week of September when Zacharias would actually get home and his wife conceived. And then the text tells us that she hid herself for a five-month period of time. 
Look at verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth. And you've read this story before. You can read through it now or later after the broadcast is over. But you will see that the angel Gabriel came to Mary the Virgin and said she would conceive of the Holy Spirit and she would give birth to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now let's think just for a moment. Zacharias goes home. He gets there the 1st of September. His wife conceives. So let's check it out. She was six months before Mary would hear that she was going to conceive by the Holy Spirit to bring forth the man-child, Jesus Christ. October, November, December, January, February, March. That's the sixth month. That's when Mary conceives. Let's start in March. April, May, June, July, August, September, October, November, December. And so we have the conclusion that indeed Jesus Christ would be born in the month of December. Now that does not zero in on the exact day, but we've now locked in according to the text, the month of December would be the time of the birth of Jesus Christ. I want to look now at the tyrant. And let me remind you of the story of the tyrant Antiochus Epiphanes. In order to be able to do that, we've got to go back over to the book of Daniel, chapter 11. The prophet Daniel, in chapter 11, a very prophetic passage of Scripture, gives us five personalities, five political leaders that he prophesies and foretells will come on the scene many years before that ever happens. Let's go to verse 21 now, and we read about the madman, Antiochus Epiphanes. It talks about 360 years before the fact, a Grecian ruler who would come into Jerusalem and commit the abomination of desolation. Look at verse 31. And arms shall stand on his part. In other words, he was going to be a military leader. They shall pollute the sanctuary of strength and take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. There is going to be an abomination of desolation in the future. We'll get to that in just a moment. But this was the prototype when Antiochus Epiphanes on Keslov 25, 168 B.C. And Keslov is a Jewish month that corresponds with our month of December. So on December the 25th, 168 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes walks into the temple, takes a pig, slaughters the pig on the altar, and throws his innards all over the holy temple. That was the abomination of desolation that Daniel wrote would happen, and it took place, Keslov 25, 168 B.C. On Keslov 25, 165 B.C., that's December the 25th, three years to the day after Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the temple, the Maccabees came in and ran Antiochus Epiphanes out of the temple. They cleaned it up. They reconsecrated the temple. During the cleanup of the temple, they had found a flask of virgin olive oil. That's how you fuel the seven-branched candelabra, the menorah. And so they lighted the menorah with that flask of virgin olive oil, and that was enough to keep the menorah lighted for one day. However, it stayed lighted for eight days. Thus, the Jewish holy day of Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication, are the Feast of Lights. Remember, Jesus Christ celebrated the Feast of Hanukkah in John chapter 10 and verse 22. That's what the menorah in the holy place in the temple represents, the light of the world, that light Jesus Christ. 
Well, Hanukkah is celebrated today. The Jewish people gather with their family, and for eight days straight, they light an additional candle and talk about the activities of the Maccabees when they ran Antiochus Epiphanes out of the temple, out of Jerusalem, reconsecrated the temple, and brought it to a place where it could then serve as the worship center for the Jewish people to worship God. Now, your next question may be, well, what does this have to do with December the 25th? Well, that's a great question. I'm going to answer it right now. We've looked at the text in Luke chapter 1, and that indicates that Jesus Christ was indeed born in December there in the shepherd's fields. The story about the tyrant Antiochus Epiphanes gives us a date, December the 25th. And I want you to know that the theologians selected December the 25th to celebrate the birthday of Jesus Christ. It was first selected by the Western Church early in the 4th century. Actually, there was a sermon that was preached on December the 25th, 386 A.D. in Antioch. It's a very interesting connection, by the way, to Antiochus Epiphanes and the future. Antiochus performed the abomination of desolation, which was a prototype of an end-of-times prophecy that will be fulfilled. In order for that to happen, there must be another madman, a world dictator, or maybe you know him better as the Antichrist, who shall come on the scene. Now, in addition to this world dictator, we'll need a temple standing on the Temple Mount in the city of Jerusalem. Again, the Bible tells us in Daniel 9, 27, there will be a temple to be desecrated with the abomination of desolation at the midway point of the seven-year tribulation. Second Thessalonians 2, 4, the apostle Paul tells us how the abomination will take place as the Antichrist walks into the Holy of Holies on the temple in Jerusalem at the midway point of the tribulation period and claims to be God, the abomination of desolation. The Bible does tell us about this event that looks to the future, a connection with the first coming of Jesus Christ and the way we get the day, December the 25th, to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. Every single prophecy that will be fulfilled in that seven-year period of time is at the point of being fulfilled. But before that happens, before any of the prophecies of the future will be fulfilled, the next prophecy on God's calendar is the rapture of the church. When Jesus shouts, the archangel shouts, the trumpet of God sounds, and we leave this place to go to be with him in the heavenlies forevermore. That rapture could happen, by the way, at any moment. How does this connect to the Christmas story? It's a very significant connection. If Jesus Christ did not fulfill all of the prophecies for the Messiah at his first coming, as he did, then we would have no assurance of the second coming. But the truth be known, the Christmas story is evidence that Jesus Christ did fulfill every one of those prophecies pertaining to his first coming. That gives us the basis upon which we then can be assured that Jesus Christ will fulfill those prophecies pertaining to his second coming. And every one of those prophecies are about to be fulfilled as the ones for his first coming, which took place at Christmas almost 2,000 years ago. What a profound thought. The prophecies fulfilled related to the first coming of Jesus Christ give us a basis upon which then we can have assurance that Jesus Christ will fulfill every single prophecy found in the word of God related to his second coming. 
I have to say, if you have any idea of those prophecies that will be fulfilled during that seven-year tribulation period, you're aware of the fact we're at that point in history when they well could be fulfilled, and very, very soon now. I hope and pray that you have looked back to that first coming of Jesus Christ in order to be prepared for the second coming by having put your trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation. Next week on the broadcast, we'll be looking at those shepherds that were in the shepherd's fields at the time of the birth of Christ and received the announcement of his birth from the angels above the shepherd's fields. You'll find out some very interesting details and facts about the Christmas story related to the shepherds if you can join us next week. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. I want to remind you of the offer that Rick made at the beginning of this segment. You can get the DVD, Bethlehem Beyond the Christmas Story. You know, people continue to be drawn from all over the world to the little town of Bethlehem, the place where Christ was born. Although the birth of Jesus Christ took place more than 2,000 years ago, the message of God's love will go on forever. Join Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and Bonnie Keene as they take a look at the key locations throughout Bethlehem, gain a better understanding of the compassion God had for the world by giving us the gift of His Son and see the impact of Emmanuel, God with us. Get your DVD for a gift of any amount to our ministry. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll wrap up the program today, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. As protests continue, Iran's attorney general says the country will review its mandatory hijab law. Denise Godwin with International Media Ministries says Iran often tells the global community what it wants to hear but then doesn't change. And that's provoked anger from a largely young population connected to the outside world through social media. IMM uses media to introduce people to the gospel through biblical history and stories. So pray for more opportunities. And we'll end today with part two of the Oral Bible Translation series. Yesterday, Nathan Ritchie with Wycliffe USA introduced us to Oral Bible Translation and explained how it works. Today, we'll learn about the impact. God is using this new method to transform lives and communities around the world. And in many places, people turn to Christ because they're part of the translation process. Go to missionnews.org for the full story and then join me here tomorrow for part three. Mission Network News is a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on Bookstore or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. And along with Rick, we've been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. 
Rick, we've had a lot to digest today again, and some of it has to do with some of the same countries that we always talk about, some of the same topics, but that is Bible prophecy, isn't it? It sure is, Jimmy, and we're looking at these things. We're monitoring these situations. We've been doing this for, for quite a few years now, but as things continue to go, it just certainly seems like every year it gets closer and closer, obviously, to the time where events could be setting into motion. For instance, what Ken Timmerman was talking about, the alliance between Russia, Iran, Turkey, and China, that seems to be coming together more than it has ever in history, doesn't it? It sure does. And we do focus on it often. Uh, These are the nations that are mentioned in Bible prophecy. That's why we look at them. I, I like what Ken said. Sometimes they squabble with one another, but really they are all working together in that portion. And there's reasons why they work together. Very interesting at this time of the year, when we look at Hanukkah, we're talking about the nations that are mentioned first in the book of Daniel, this group that are coming together that are mentioned in the book of Daniel that are also mentioned in Ezekiel uh, and Psalm 83. The passages that we always talk about, which is the alignment of nations that will come against Israel. Their common denominator is that they don't like Israel. In fact, they want to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. And they're all Islamic. And so as we focus on these nations, it does give us, um, you know, on a weekly basis, it gives us an understanding of how close, remember, uh, all the things that we focus on are happening after the rapture of the church. But if we're getting so much closer to these events taking place, it seems like that that time clock, if you will, to when it strikes midnight, when that's when the rapture happens after that is when we start to see the events of the tribulation period unfold. That's right, Jimmy. And even though we're looking at these events and we are constantly reminded of what's going on in Iran and the role that they might play in the end times in all these other Middle Eastern nations, we need to remember that there is Uh, a situation on the ground there with those protests and a growing Christian community in Iran. And we need to remember to keep them in prayer as the Lord tarries before the rapture. We want to keep our Christian brethren in prayer, don't we? You sure do. You know, and especially keep in mind, these are humans just like us that are trying to survive in an authoritarian society, uh, cracking down, trying to implement a religion. You know, you could go back through history. This has happened so many times. This is not the first time in history. It just seems to be getting worse. And we need to remember these folks at this time of the year, the growing Christian community in Iran, the growing Christian community in Turkey, the growing Christian community in China, all around the world. We do see that the church is growing and we're trying to help those. And we need to remember them in prayer at this time of the year. Jimmy, you just brought up the book of Daniel, and as I was talking with Dave Dolan, we talked about the Abraham Accords, which began with so much promise, but it looks like they are slowly beginning to unravel as uh, potentially the Palestinian situation escalates. But the book of Daniel says that these peace treaties will be on the table, but not normalized, right? 
Right. They will be on the table. In fact, uh, when it does talk in, in Daniel chapter 9, it talks about the Antichrist will come and confirm a peace treaty. That Hebrew word is gabar, and he will confirm one. That means that there has to be one on the table. We've talked about the ones, the Camp David Accords, the Oslo Accords, the peace treaty with Jordan, and the Abrahamic Accords uh, that President Donald Trump b- brought into existence. Uh Yes, uh, it does seem that there are situations that are taking place that looks like it could be breaking up, which would set the pace, at least uh, for the Antichrist to come on the scene to confirm for the first three and a half years. In fact, Rick, I'm glad you brought that up, too, because that's what starts the tribulation period. We talk about the rapture. We don't know the time period between the rapture and the tribulation, but what does start the tribulation is the confirmation of a peace agreement with that charismatic leader, the Antichrist, as he comes on the world scene to bring world order on the world after the rapture of the church. And then, Jimmy, you continue on with R.C. Murrow as he talked about this banking system that we know is going to help facilitate what's going to take place during the tribulation. But, Jimmy, what I'd like to focus on is what we talked with Paul Scharf about And the fact that we are looking at prophecy yet to happen, but Paul was talking about fulfilled prophecy with basically the most important event in all of history, wasn't he? Yes. uh, And he, you know, uh, I like what he says. Friends of Israel say it. We say it. Without Hanukkah, there would be no Christmas. Uh, these were those 400 years in between the intertestamental period, the dark hole that we always talk about from the end of Malachi to the beginning of Matthew in your Bible. It's just the pages, but, uh, you know, we don't talk about that, but that's the time period when Hanukkah took place that was first talked about in the book of Daniel. Uh, the, the very people that were involved in this process came about and along with mentioning Alexander the Great and Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus the Great, uh, the Antichrist is mentioned, and they were all more or less types of Antichrist that were coming on the scene. Daniel prophesied these events way in the future, and that's why sometimes people don't understand how could, in fact, Jewish people, if you want to witness to a Jewish person, the best book to use in the Bible is the book of Daniel, because the book of Daniel talks about these events, and it does talk about whomever the Messiah was going to be, he had to come into place and onto the earth at a certain point in time. Galatians 4.4 4 talks about that in the fullness of time. God brought forth his son, born of a woman. Yes, that did take place exactly as it was foretold in the exact time. I like how, on uh, as we talked about Hanukkah today, and Dr. Jimmy DeYoung talked about the timing of his birth. It all fits very well, Rick, with what we talk about today. And as we're talking about the events that are taking place, it does help us to understand we're living in history past, history present, and we are looking forward to history, his story future. Rick, thanks so much. I do hope you get ready for Christmas as we all are trying to do that. We'll look forward to being on the program again next week where we'll talk about the best way to communicate with a Jewish person during this time period of Hanukkah. We'll continue the legacy series and of course we'll update everyone on geopolitical events that are happening around the world. See you next week, Rick. Looking forward to it. Folks, in light of what we look at on a weekly basis, 
The time for the rapture is coming very quickly. Let's keep looking up until. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today.